This episode of Cheat Codes, a sickle cell podcast, is intended for informational and entertainment purposes only. This episode of Cheat Codes was supported by Adacvio. What's up, Cheat Codes listeners? It's a pleasure to be back with you once again. It's me, Dr. Z. And me, Dr. C. Dr. C, we have had luminary after luminary after luminary pioneers of sickle cell disease on this podcast over the last almost 30 episodes now, right? I think 45, Dr. Z. Uh, Oh man, I'm that far behind? That's amazing. Wow. Well, look, I'm so excited to jump into this conversation with this, this next pioneer in sickle cell disease. Why don't you tell the Warriors who we're talking to today? Yeah, no, we have a huge guest today. I'm so excited. We have Dr. Mark Gladwin, who's the Associate Vice Chancellor of Science Strategy at the University of Pittsburgh. He's the chair of the large uh, active Department of Medicine at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine, the director of the Pittsburgh Heart, Lung, Blood, and Vascular Medicine Institute, and I would say the world's expert on pulmonary hypertension and sickle cell disease, nitric oxide metabolism. He's published more than 200 papers um, and has a, a very active program. And I'm, I'm so excited to talk to him today. Welcome, Dr. Gladwin. Thank you so much for having me. You know, it's such an honor to be here. And I'm so excited about what you are doing in terms of communicating important topics in sickle cell. I'm a little disappointed that I'm number 45 on your list, though. So uh, despite all the flattery, uh, uh, but it's nice to be here. Thank you. Certainly not number 45 on the list, maybe <laughs> episode number 45. but Exactly, exactly. All right, so let's dive right into it, Dr. Gladwin. I mean, one of the things that I always think about as, as sort of I would navigate through the sickle cell clinic is I wonder how conversations are unfolding in the clinic rooms of some of these experts in, in various disease sort of processes. So let's, let's start right at the, at the forefront. How, how do you talk about pulmonary hypertension with patients? What do you tell them? pulmonary hypertension is when you're addressing this in clinic? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question because we're very familiar with high blood pressure, right? And we know for our whole lives that we go into a clinic and someone puts a cuff on our arm and we measure the, a level and we, we know that we have high blood pressure. And we know that high blood pressure is a risk for strokes and heart attacks. Um, and in fact, a lot of sickle cell patients realize that with sickle cell, you tend to have lower blood pressure. So most people with sickle cell, that's not a problem for them. But what we're talking about here is something different. It's secret. It's a little sinister. It's high blood pressure in the artery of the lung. And unfortunately, there's no way to put a cuff around that because the the artery in the lung is inside the chest. And the artery in the lung is the artery that goes to the lung from the right side of the heart. So you know you have a right atrium, you have a right ventricle, it pumps blood through the lung to get oxygen, and that oxygenated blood then goes to the left atrium, the left heart, and it gets pumped out to the body. Well, some people, especially people with sickle cell disease, are at risk of developing high blood pressure in the artery going to the lung. And the only way to measure that is with a fancy echocardiogram, which is a sonogram of the chest. It's the same technology where when, you, when you're pregnant, you have a baby, people put that sonogram on your belly to look at the baby in the uterus. It's the same technology. We put that sonogram in the chest and we can estimate or measure that pressure of the artery going to the lung. And the last thing I'll say is the reason it's so important is when you get high blood pressure in the lung, you can start having heart failure and that can lead to shortness of breath, exercise intolerance, and ultimately it's a very high risk factor for death. 
it's a it's a risk factor for sudden death. I, I'm I think old enough to remember when we didn't know this about sickle cell, and I I think you know you were really a pioneer in in bringing this out because like you said, it's silent. It wasn't something we were seeing in the patients, um, but it was it was something that was really um, killing patients. How how did you come about thinking about uh, the blood pressure in the lungs of sickle cell patients? Why does it happen? What what made you go there? So I was at the NIH and. You know, this is now probably 20 years ago, and there had been some observations in what we would call case reports, where people had noticed that some patients were developing high blood pressure in the lungs. In fact, you all probably know who Francis Collins is, you know, the head of the the NIH. And Francis Collins, when he was a young physician scientist, he published about two cases of people with sickle cell that had high blood pressure in the lungs. And there were a few other pioneers like Oswaldo Castro at Howard University. He had published a small series of patients that had presented with severe pulmonary hypertension. And I'd entered the field and I was at the NIH and I was interested in how blood vessels worked and how nitric oxide made blood vessels dilate. And I was studying pulmonary hypertension because I was a pulmonologist, Um, but I was increasingly interested in could we develop new therapies for sickle cell disease around nitric oxide. And um, I had some discussions with Griffin Rogers, who's actually the head of NIDDK and another uh, pioneer in sickle cell research. And he mentioned to me one day we were walking through the hallway once and he said, you know, I I wonder if pulmonary hypertension is a problem in sickle cell. And, you know, you're a a pulmonologist. You're interested in sickle cell. Your research is in sickle cell. I wonder if you should look at that more. And at the time, uh, we were doing, again, some studies trying to develop nitric oxide as a therapy. And so we, I thought, well, let's, let's look at this. Is We know that we see rare cases of severe pulmonary hypertension. You know, is this a bigger problem than we realize? And so... I set about designing a screening study where we were just going to try to enroll and screen patients with sickle cell who were in the community, in the Washington, Baltimore area, that were not in the hospital. They were just at home in steady state, you know, no active pain crisis, and see if their, what their pulmonary pressures were. And again, we had this new technology, new at the time, where with a sonogram, an echocardiogram, we could estimate the pulmonary pressure. And so we set about establishing, you know, how bad the pulmonary hypertension definition would be. And so we started screening. And I would go to, you know, black churches. I was on local radio shows. I would always go to the Wednesday Comprehensive Sickle Cell Clinic at Howard. And I was mentored there by Oswaldo Castro to learn more about clinical sickle cell disease. And in fact, I ended up working in that clinic for 10 years and became a staff member, faculty member in that clinic, even though I was a country lung doctor. Um, and then the NIH program, we had quite a big sickle cell program that kept growing at the NIH. So over that period of time, we ended up screening about 195 people with sickle cell. And we found out a few surprises. Um, one, we found out that a high pressure in the lung was pretty common. Um, however, the pressure elevation was a little more mild than we thought. So about 30% of people with sickle cell all comers, anybody over 18 that had sickle cell, had mild high blood pressure in the lung. But about a third of those people, the pressure was more severely elevated. We can talk more about the specific numbers and thresholds later. 
But at the time, I thought, well, maybe this isn't quite as big a problem because the pressures aren't as high as I'm used to seeing in people without sickle cell that have pulmonary hypertension. But then a real problem emerged in that we started seeing that the people that had the highest pressures were dying early. And we discovered at that time very quickly that this subgroup of people with high blood pressure in the lungs were the group that were dying of sickle cell. And as you know, in, pa in patients with sickle cell over 18, we see about 2 to 4% of people dying every year. It's really a, a big, big challenge, a crisis, a tragedy. And um, it seemed to be the people that had the high blood pressure in the lungs that were disproportionately falling in this high-risk group. What did you see them dying from? When something like this happens, it can be very confusing. You know, some people uh, with sickle cell are admitted with a pain crisis and they have chest syndrome or they have sepsis from infection. And some people were dying of sudden death, where just at home they were dying. And at the time, people thought, oh, maybe it's narcotics. You know, maybe they're taking too many narcotics and it's sudden death from that. But it was always in the group with high blood pressure in the lungs. So we, we realized at that point the pulmonary hypertension is part of this problem. You know, maybe it's not the only cause. You know, maybe there's a chest syndrome. Maybe there is a hypoventilatory effect from too high a dose of a narcotic. Maybe it's, it's pain crisis. But the people that have the pulmonary hypertension don't have the reserve to make it through that. And so they're the ones that are then having sudden death. But a lot of, about half of the causes of death was sudden death, which sudden death means you're okay, and then suddenly you collapse um, and you have a cardiac arrest. You've mentioned a couple times uh, nitric oxide. And I, I'm sure some of the listeners are thinking, oh, they give me that at the dentist's office. But that, that one's nitrous oxide, the laughing gas. Um, nitric oxide is really something our body makes that works on our blood vessels to loosen them up a little bit and um, is involved in how the, how the um, blood vessels work. So... If, if you have problems with that, then, then the blood vessels don't work very well. You can get high blood pressure in those blood vessels, and, the, and then that leads to, to problems. What sort of problems does it lead to in, in your lungs? Why is it bad to have the high blood pressure in your lungs? I mean, obviously, it's bad. It's associated with death, but what, what is the, sort of the process that happens there? Yeah, and before I answer that question, I have to compliment you. That's about the best description of nitric oxide that I've heard. People do always think it's laughing gas or nitrous oxide. And, you know, I sort of tell people that nitric oxide is not quite as fun. Um, it's colorless, odorless, tasteless, and it's made by our own bodies and it dilates our blood vessels. But it turns out the arteries in the lung make a lot of nitric oxide. So nitric oxide is very important in keeping those blood vessels open. And it turns out that people with sickle cell, because it's a hemolytic anemia, because the blood vessels, every day the red blood cells, some of them are bursting open and hemolyzing, that when the red cell bursts open, it releases some hemoglobin and it puts it where it's not supposed to be. It's supposed to be in the red blood cell, but it gets out in the plasma. And that hemoglobin, it turns out when it's out of the red cell, it can destroy the nitric oxide. So if you're living with sickle cell, you know, over decades of life, your hemolysis is, is kind of damaging the arteries in the lung. And then you asked, what's the problem with, the, with damaging the arteries in the lungs and vasoconstricting those arteries in the lungs or squeezing the blood flow to, to the arteries in the lung is that the right side of our heart, you know, we have four chambers. We have the left chambers and the right chambers. 
the left side of chambers pump blood to the brain and the body, and they're used to a really high blood pressure. But the blood pressure in our arteries of our lung is actually really low. So the right side of our heart pumps blood at a low pressure. It's like a low pressure pump. And so the right heart is very fragile. It's not used to high pressures. So if suddenly the blood pressure rises in the arteries going to our lungs, we start to get right heart failure. And if the right heart fails, you start to have troubles with shortness of breath going upstairs, shortness of breath walking. You start to get maybe some swelling in the ankles. You can start to get some chest pain. And if it gets bad enough, you can start having arrhythmias. And at its worst, the right heart can fail and it can result in sudden death. And sudden death is where suddenly the heart either stops squeezing, it, it goes into asystole, or you go into an ventricular arrhythmia. And that's the greatest risk factor. It turns out that high blood pressure in the lungs is a very big risk factor for right heart failure and a risk factor for sudden death. So warriors, if you want more information about hemolysis, that was our word of the day in episode four, if you need a refresher. And I, I think that brings me to something I, I remember kind of early in my career, this hypothesis came out that there were two sorts of sickle cell patients. There were the ones who had lots of hemolysis, the red blood cells were breaking down, they had a lot of free hemoglobin, um, they had low hemoglobins, they had a certain set of problems, and there were vasoocclusive patients who were having more uh, blood vessel blockage and ischemia and you know damage to tissue from, from that. And I, I think you started all of that. What brought that on? Was it all of this same stuff? Was it all of this nitric oxide metabolism and this 30% of patients with pulmonary hypertension? That, that's a great question. Um, first of all, in every disease, you know, whether it's cystic fibrosis or whether it's diabetes or whether it's asthma, we always see different presentations. There's some people that have a different sort of set of risk factors, a different set of clinical presentations. And sickle cell is the same. You know, while the hallmark of the disease is vasoocclusive painful crisis, you know, that you come in with a vasoocclusive event, you have severe pain, you then get oftentimes a high chance of getting chest syndrome, or which is like a pneumonia. As you know, about 70% of patients can go through a year with no hospitalizations for a vasoocclusive event. And in fact, there's some people with sickle cell that have pain at home, but not severe attacks of vasoocclusive events. And we've always known that some people present with different manifestations, more severe vasoocclusive events, and other people have less of these events. And it's always been confusing to us because everybody has, you know, most people are SS, 75% of patients have SS, they have the same mutation. So why is one patient have hospitalized every two weeks with a pain event and another person has apparently silent disease. So we were looking at population studies and mechanism. And what we discovered was that there are some people that don't have a lot of vasoocclusive events and their disease is pretty mild, but they still get high blood pressure in the lungs and they're at high risk of death. And we see those patients present with more leg ulcers, more high blood pressure in the lungs, a high risk of, of, of again, having a, a sudden death event. Oftentimes that group of patients has more kidney injury. And what we found was that 
the patients with the more severe hemolytic anemia, lower hemoglobin levels, higher hemolysis, tend to be in that group. Now, having said that, these aren't perfect separations. There's tremendous overlap. So a lot of patients have everything, that pain crisis, chest syndrome, and develop kidney injury and, and have pulmonary hypertension. But what we did discover was there were these endophenotypes or these, these different kind of risk groups. And it kind of makes sense because there's other diseases with hemolytic anemia like thalassemia, intermedia, and those patients don't ever get a pain crisis or vaso-occlusive event, but they also get pulmonary hypertension. So it appears that anemia and hemolysis can lead to heart disease independent of the pain crisis. Now, what does this mean for a patient? What it means is that we actually have to screen for this, that you may feel great. So you're, you're 35, you're 37, you're uh, working hard, you feel good, maybe you're, maybe you're pretty anemic, you're a little short of breath going upstairs, but you're not having pain, you're not taking opioids, you're not, you're not having a lot of recurrent pain, but you, you do need to check your kidney function. You do need to check for the high blood pressure in the lungs because that can be what I call a, si a more silent risk factor and something that you want to aggressively address if you have it. Thank you for that really, really nice sort of um, summary of, of, of that spectrum. I, I want to dive a little bit more into just that last statement you made. You know, we've talked a lot about the dangers, the problems. I, I, I'm imagining warriors listening to this thinking, oh my goodness, I'm going to die from this tomorrow. For the warriors who are listening to this thinking about, oh my goodness, do I have pulmonary hypertension? One, what should they go and talk to their doctor about? What should they say? Like, how can they bring this up with their physician? What type of tests would their doctor be ordering, should be ordering for these types of warriors that may be high risk? And, and if they are found to have pulmonary hypertension, what can they do about it? Well, first of all, I just want to be very clear that when I'm talking to an adult you know, warrior with sickle cell disease, I'll often ask, you know, how many times have your doctors told you that you're going to die before the age of 18 or before the age of 40? Or if you don't do this, you're going to die. And, you know, and invariably, you know, the patient that I'm talking to will say, oh, doc, you know, that happens all the time or that happened here or that happened there. And I think that that message can become stale. And I'm not sure that uh, that's how we should be communicating these challenges. At the same time, I know, you know, many of our patients have lost a brother or sister. They've lost so many friends. And they do worry that despite great advances like hydroxyurea, that, you know, people are still dying too young and that a lot needs to happen. And so I just have a very honest discussion that, that there are certain risk factors. It's like, I don't have sickle cell disease, but I worry about the Framingham heart risk factors for myself. I want to know my cholesterol, my blood pressure in my arm, my family history. I don't want to smoke because I know that a drug like a statin or a blood pressure medicine is going to help me live longer. It's not going to make me feel better, but it's going to help me live longer. And I'd say it's the same situation here that, that, that our warriors with sickle cell disease have to say, hey, Am I developing a little bit of kidney problem from having decades of hemolysis and anemia? Am I getting some heart problems? Am I getting some pulmonary hypertension? Um, am I starting to develop a little high blood pressure? Because we're seeing that later in life. 
because if I have those things, I'm at higher risk and, and, I, and there's probably something I can do about it. So the kind of tests that I recommend are, one is the pulmonary hypertension tends to associate often with kidney, some very subtle kidney problems. So there's some very simple tests to measure whether you have proteinuria, protein in the urine. You can also measure something called the glomerular filtration rate, which is your creatinine clearance. Well, it's a fancy name for just measuring whether your kidney function is starting to decline a little bit. And then the other thing you can get is a sonogram of the heart called an echocardiogram. And that's a non-invasive test. We do that for every pregnant you know, woman in America. And every sickle cell patient who's an adult should get that test. And it's just a sonogram of the chest. And you can estimate whether you have pulmonary hypertension. It turns out that if you have an estimated high pulmonary pressure with a sonogram of the chest, it's the greatest risk factor that anybody's ever discovered for sickle cell. If your value is high in that number, there's a tenfold increased risk of death. And what do we do with that information? Well, we can then be more aggressive. We can say, look, let's really talk about this. I think we need to push up the hydroxyurea dose. Hey, I need to, we need to think about exchange transfusions. We need to think about new drugs that are coming along. Maybe it's time to think about bone marrow transplantation. Maybe it's time to get in clinical trials and be a little more aggressive with therapy. Maybe we just need to take our drugs more regularly because this is a concern. You know, when my blood pressure goes up, I start taking my blood pressure pill a little more, you know, religiously. I put it right, that pill right by my toothbrush so I can't get to the toothbrush without remembering to take that pill. And I have those discussions with my patients. And, and you know, I think knowledge is also empowering. You know, we want to be powerful. We want to be empowered by knowledge and know what's ahead of us. What are the challenges? What, what should we do about those challenges? Today's episode of Cheat Codes is brought to you by Novartis, manufacturers of Adacvio and the Adacvio Warrior Way program. Hey, warriors fighting sickle cell disease, you know how unpredictable and uncomfortable sickle cell pain crises can be. That's why it's so important to explore your options. One of those options is Adacvio. What exactly is Adacvio? Adacvio is a treatment for people 16 years or older with sickle cell disease that could reduce how often certain pain crises happen. It is not known if Adacvio is safe and effective in children under 16 years of age. And the Adacvio Warrior Way program can provide you with support, including tips, tools, and resources to help you understand Adacvio. Reducing the frequency of pain crises may be possible with Adacvio. Talk to your doctor to see if treatment with Adacvio is right for you and visit adacvio.com to learn more. That's A-D-A-K-V-E-O.com. Visit adacvio.com today. Important safety information. What is Adacvio? Adacvio is a prescription medicine used in people 16 years of age and older who have sickle cell disease to help reduce how often painful crises happen. It is not known if Adacvio is safe and effective in children under 16 years of age. What should I tell my doctor or healthcare provider before taking Adacvio? Before receiving Adacvio, tell your healthcare provider about all of your medical conditions, including if you are pregnant or plan to become pregnant. Adacvio may harm your unborn baby. Are breastfeeding or plan to breastfeed? It is not known if Adacvio passes into breast milk. You and your healthcare provider should decide the best way to feed your baby during treatment with Adacvio. Tell your healthcare provider about all of the medicines you take, including prescription and over-the-counter medicines, vitamins, and herbal supplements. How will I receive Adacvio? 
your healthcare provider will give you Adacvio as an infusion into your vein through an intravenous or IV line over 30 minutes. You will receive your first infusion and then a second infusion two weeks later. After that, you will receive an infusion every four weeks. Your healthcare provider may also prescribe other treatments for you to take during treatment with Adacvio. Do not stop receiving Adacvio unless your healthcare provider tells you to. If you miss an appointment for an infusion, call your healthcare provider as soon as possible to reschedule. What are some of the possible side effects of Adacvio? Adacvio may cause serious side effects, including infusion-related reactions. Infusion-related reactions may happen during or within 24 hours of receiving an infusion of Adacvio. Your healthcare provider may slow down, temporarily stop, or completely stop your infusion with Adacvio if you are having an infusion-related reaction. You may continue to receive Adacvio at a slower infusion rate, and your healthcare provider may give you certain medicines before your infusion to lower your risk of getting an infusion-related reaction. Your healthcare provider should monitor you for signs and symptoms of infusion-related reactions and treat your symptoms as needed. Tell your healthcare provider right away if you get any of the following signs and symptoms of an infusion-related reaction. Pain in various locations, headache, fever, chills or shivering, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, tiredness, dizziness, sweating, hives, itching, shortness of breath, or wheezing. Adacvio may interfere with a blood test. Tell your healthcare provider if you are receiving Adacvio before having any blood test. Adacvio may interfere with a laboratory test to measure your platelet counts. The most common side effects of Adacvio include nausea, stomach area or abdominal pain or tenderness, joint pain, back pain, fever. These are not all of the possible side effects of Adacvio. For more information, ask your healthcare provider or pharmacist. Call your doctor for medical advice about side effects. You are encouraged to report negative side effects of prescription drugs to the Food and Drug Administration. Visit fda.gov medwatch or call 1-800-FDA-1088. General information about the safe and effective use of Adacvio. Medicines are sometimes prescribed for purposes other than those listed in a patient information leaflet. You can ask your healthcare provider or pharmacist for more information about Adacvio. Dr. Gladwin, we have spent the last uh, 30 or so minutes engaging your left brain quite a bit. I'm going to give your right brain a little bit of a chance to come out in the, in the sort of remaining parts of this episode. You know, there's there's a lot of things I want to touch on just to to sort of hear about what drives you and 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 what excites you. But before I get there, I want to address something that has been a major contribution in the sickle cell disease community, particularly for, for providers, but, but of course for patients as well, which is the new sickle cell disease textbook. I'd love to hear a little bit from you on its inception, what drove this, um, and, and what some of the, the challenges and highlights were as you kind of created this gift for the sickle cell community. Yeah, thanks for asking about that. Um, you know, this is something that, that we're really proud of. Um, I was approached by McGraw-Hill by one of their editors, Karen, who's African-American, who is really committed to sickle cell. They had a very strong history in oncology textbooks. You know, McGraw-Hill creates great cancer textbooks, and they hadn't really done anything for sickle cell. And, and they approached me and said, hey, we want to do something, you know, with sickle cell. And we thought that, that you could put a good team together. And I said, well, do, you know, do people get textbooks anymore? And, you know, I think podcasts are, are taking over the space. And, and they assured me that, oh, these books are, are distributed nationally. There's online versions. You know, this is a really important way to communicate with 
the clinical world, with clinicians all over the world, um, and with patients. And so then I had a commitment from McGraw-Hill that they were going to put a lot into this. They were going to get the best illustrators that I could have as many contributing authors as possible and a lot of creativity like Hertz Nazaire. You know, we were able to get his art on the cover and, and in, the, in the pages of the book. And so there was a lot of creative license to engage the best people. So we agreed to do it. And this was Greg Cotto, Enrico Novelli and myself. And so then we did something that I'm really excited about. We decided we wanted every expert possible worldwide to participate. And it would be the senior statesmen of the field, you know, the people that mentored me, like Elliot Vichinsky and Oswaldo Castro and Alan Schechter and um, Frank Bunn and, you know, all the illustrious leaders of the field, Bob Hebel, you know, all, all the leaders of the field, historic leaders of the field would participate. And then I reached out to all the, the senior people in the field, you know, again, you know, Paul Fernet, who wrote a chapter, but unfortunately passed away last year. And, um, and, then, and then new investigators, the up and coming stars that, you know, that are coming up and contributing so much important information. So it ended up being 84 authors agreed. I think only one person said no, because they were incredibly busy, but everyone said yes. And we also had leaders from the African continent, leaders in India, leaders uh, speaking to emerging sickle cell research and clinical discoveries out of Brazil. And we had basic science, we had state-of-the-art clinical management, and we had the international and, and, and therapeutic perspective. And the last thing I'll say about it is we think it's an incredible resource. For example, if you just look at eye disease, you know, it's a 20 page chapter on every form of eye complication and how to manage it from the world's expert, John Hopkins, on that topic. And then we have stroke, 20 pages of every neurologic thing. So I think if you're a sickle cell doctor and you're, you know, working in Nigeria and Lagos, you can get information by the world's experts on even the most rare challenges. We're, we're, we're excited to share that with everybody. Yeah, we, we each have a copy on our desk. I, I think it's, it's really a huge accomplishment. I mean, there's been other books in sickle cell, but there's never been like a definitive textbook. And I think that's what you put together. And I, I can't imagine how hard it is to get all of those personalities to work together who have, you know, lots of differences of opinion and compete for grants and, uh, you know, in a healthy and sometimes unhealthy ways compete. But it, it turned out to be a fantastic book. And I know... Um, in, in talking with Hertz Nazaire, he was, he was so proud to be a part of it. And, um, it's a beautiful book too. Yeah. He, uh, you know, Hertz, I wish I could show the book, but you'll, you might can have a picture, but you know, he has that, that beautiful painting called 11 and he has another one called hope. And he, he really embraced putting those images on the, you know, on the cover. And we have a whole page about him, unfortunately, not not at the time, you know, communicating with he was so excited. Um, but I, that's really special for us and so meaningful that his art, you know, and, and just to tell you about the cover, we actually had the entire cover, the color of the cover and the art, the scientific art and the color was designed to match and align with his, his uh, piece, 11. So you'll see that the coloration is centered around his work as opposed to, you know, a science perspective. And, and I do want to just uh, a shout out to Karen Edmondson. She's the person who came to me from McGraw-Hill with this vision 
that sickle cell was, you know, more important than, than, than cancer and that, you know, this was something we needed to do. So I really appreciate her. We agree. Thank you, Karen. So I, I am curious, how did you, a pulmonologist working on basic biology of blood vessels at the NIH, wind up in sickle cell? We have, you know, most sickle cell doctors, they go to fellowship in hematology and they take care of sickle cell patients and they get brought into into sickle cell. What was sort of your path from, you know, training through uh, NIH to Pittsburgh and really developing a huge state-of-the-art sickle cell program? You know, ultimately, I was, like many of us, I was inspired by patients and by their struggle and challenge. And I was also inspired by mentors. And, you know, I, I did my pulmonary training in Seattle. And then I did critical care training at the NIH. And when I was in Seattle, I had a patient, you know, with severe acute chest syndrome on the ventilator for weeks and weeks and weeks. And he survived. Um, and I, I presented his case to all the pulmonologists there. And I did research on acute chest syndrome. And I was sort of shocked to find that there was hardly any data at the time. This was 1997. And I couldn't believe that there was such an important disease with very little data, very little research, very little understanding of what caused it and how to treat it. But there was a shining light, and that was this guy, Elliot Paczynski and Laurie Stiles. And they'd been studying it. And so, so I kind of developed a passion for, I thought, this is an area where as a lung doctor, there's very little being done. Maybe I could help contribute. And the other thing is I sort of developed a little hero worship for this Elliot Vichinsky New England Journal. So I went to a meeting in Chicago, the American Thoracic Society meeting, and I remember he gave a talk and I was in the big lecture hall and I went up to him afterwards and I was so excited to meet him and I told him that I was a lung doctor. And I actually assumed he was a lung doctor and he was a hematologist, but he was so enthusiastic and, and really provided encouraging words. And of course, then I went back to the NIH. And so I was always interested in sickle cell and had an eye on it. And uh, when I studied nitric oxide, I realized nitric oxide could have a role in chest syndrome and it could have a role in the pulmonary hypertension we were seeing. And I, I actually just started a science project and I, I, I was mentored by Griff Rogers that I mentioned and Alan Schechter. Um, but as I started this research study, and it was we were going to look at inhaled NO for patients with sickle cell, I started bringing patients into the NIH, the clinical center. And patients would get sick. You know, they would get a chest syndrome. They, and I realized very quickly that I didn't know enough about sickle cell. So I reached out to the local world's expert in clinical care, who was Oswaldo Castro. And I said, Dr. Castro, I don't know enough about sickle cell, and I'm taking care of patients on this research study. Would you, one, be available as a consultant if, to help us at the NIH? But two, could I go to your clinic and, and kind of uh, shadow you and learn? And so I started going to his Wednesday clinic, and I went every single Wednesday. And after about, I think, a year or two, he said, Mark, you know, I've taught you everything I could teach you, you know, which wasn't true. Uh, why don't you become staff here, faculty, and you can staff the clinic? And so I got credentials even though, again, I was a lung doctor as a, as a, a sickle cell doctor. And for 10 years, I, I saw patients in that Wednesday clinic, but I always learned from Oswaldo and from the patients. And, but through that, I just became so amazed by, as, as we write in the foreword of this book, just the, the immense challenges our patients with sickle cell have faced, socioeconomic, 
challenges, systemic racism, a disease that's horribly painful with no cure, minimally effective therapies, especially at that time, and challenges from childhood forward. And so I got so impressed by patients' resiliency, by the, 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 the unmet need, and developed a strong partnership. Um, and so I really learned from, and we built a big program and so many courageous patients of sickle cell not only would, would work with us at Howard, but would come to the NIH and, and volunteer. You know, all of my work, all of these, all the patients have volunteered to contribute to advancing science and knowledge. And, and that kind of passion and commitment is what's, what's always driven me. It's absolutely amazing. I mean, to hear about your path uh, and, and just to hear about your hero worship for Elliot Vichinsky, I, I remember being in, in the audience for his um, you know, Lifetime Achievement Award at ASFO several years ago and, and having the same feeling, you know, of just what an immense, uh, what an immense um, individual he was. Um, so I, I share that with you a little bit. I, you know, I also want to talk a little bit about where you are right now. So UPMC. Well, can I interrupt you? Can I? Of course. Can I mention one other? Please. Elliot, Elliot story. So as my career has gone forward, I've ended up running a lot of clinical trials. And as you know, when you do a clinical trial, there's only about a 10% chance it's going to work. You know, you do all this effort, you, you raise all this money through the NIH. So many patients and doctors and nurses participate in this trial. And in the end, Often the trial's negative, you know, and, and we ran a huge clinical trial of Viagra. You know, it's a drug that would promote the nitric oxide pathway. And the study was stopped early because surprisingly, the drug caused more pain. It, you know, we thought it was helping the pulmonary hypertension, but it unexpectedly caused pain and we had to stop the, the trial early. And I was so dejected, you know, we, it, this was a $4 million trial, a huge effort. And the trial was negative. It was probably the lowest point in my career. And I got an email from Elliot Vichinsky and there was some typos and he'd essentially printed the famous quote um, from Roosevelt, Theodore, Ro Teddy Roosevelt. And it was, it's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred with dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs who comes up short again and again, because there's no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at worst, if he fails, at least fails while, while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. So he sends me this. Amazing. Later on, it was interesting. A, a colleague of mine had another trial that failed who was in the lung world. And I emailed him that I pulled up that old email from Elliot. And I said, from Elliot to me, to you. Um, <laughs> but, I, but I think it does make the point that, you know, we only succeed in advance cures and treatments if we participate in trials, and we participate in science and we work together and we fail, but ultimately we succeed as we move forward. So that is important a lesson from Dr. Vichinsky. Amazing. And Dr. Vichinsky was on episode 26 of our podcast and was just fantastic. So if uh, you want it's a good to listen for, for, for warriors, if you, if you want to go check that out now, before we, before we wrap up here, I want to, I want to talk a little bit about the amazing center that, that, that exists at UPMC where you currently are, where you've taken, you know, this path and you've sort of now 
landed at UPMC, have been there for some time, have built this amazing center. I mean, you have, I mean, Enrico Novelli, Greg Caddo, um, you know, Jude Jonasson. I mean, uh, Laura DeCastro, uh, now Julia Zhu, right? Uh, you have all of these people in Pittsburgh. You have this amazing center of, of just gladiators. Tell us a little bit about UPMC and, and, and you know, if, if there's warriors from Pittsburgh who are listening, you know, how they can find out what's happening at UPMC. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we, we've really, you know, brought together an amazing team that has lifelong commitments to sickle cell and really committed to the science and, and clinical excellence. You know, how do we figure out what's wrong, how to best target new treatments, how to get trials done? And so that group you mentioned is really impressive. We also have amazing basic scientists, you know, that are funded by the NIH to discover things and new treatments like Prithu Sund, who's here and has been doing spectacular discovery research on inflammation in sickle cell. And people like Adam Straub, who's studying basic mechanisms of sickle cell disease. Um, and of course, don't forget Solomon Oforiakwa. You know, he's uh, one of our top scientists in sickle cell. He's actually the, the, the current dean of the University of Ghana. He spends half his time there and half his time at the University of Pittsburgh. And so we, we have really great people uh, leading clinical research as well as basic research. Um, and we also have a really exciting multi-center trial right now called the SCD CARE trial. You know, we're actually, it's funded by the NIH. It's a 19 million seven-year trial. It's in 20 sites around the country, including United Kingdom and France. And in that study, if you have high blood pressure in the lungs or you're developing chronic kidney disease, uh, we're comparing whether the best standard of care, how that works, compared to the best standard of care plus aggressive exchange transfusion, you know, every month replacing blood with non-sickle cell blood. And so far, we've enrolled 22 patients in that study. The goal is 150. It's active. Um, that's a real opportunity for people to participate. And again, most centers in America are part of that trial. So we're really excited about that. So uh, yeah, we're, we're delighted to partner here. Andrea Williams and other folks, folks work closely with us in the Children's uh, Sickle Cell Foundation here in Pittsburgh. And we see this as a partnership you know, to try to, to make, hopefully make a dent in the universe of sickle cell. That's, that's amazing. So SCD Cares is super exciting. What else has got you excited in sickle cell? Are there uh, things on the horizon the warriors should be looking out for, projects, um, new, new therapies, new ideas in sickle cell that, that have Dr. Gladwin excited? Yeah. So, you know, obviously the, the thing that excites everybody tremendously, you know, gene therapy to increase fetal hemoglobin levels or to, or to increase anti-polymerization, hemoglobin A molecules, and CRISPR gene editing, that's all super exciting. Uh, those therapies though, are only gonna be available to some people and they do require bone marrow transplantation now. So I'm actually uh, equally excited about the idea of combination therapy. The idea that, you know, we're gonna have one pill that hits this and one pill that hits that and one pill that hits that and we're gonna stop pain. Can you imagine, you know? And uh, some of the areas, you know, we obviously have anti-polymerization therapies. We have drugs that are boosting the fetal hemoglobin even higher uh, than hydroxyurea. And we have drugs that are blocking inflammation. And I'd be excited about the future where we start combining some of those things. Um, it's gonna be expensive now, but, but progress will happen. And 
there's a whole new area of the field. If you look at the history of sickle cell, we had the understanding fetal hemoglobin and polymerization. We had the understanding of adhesion and inflammation. And then we had the understanding of hemolysis. And now there's a new scientific opportunity. It's understanding something called the inflammasome. And it's, it's sterile inflammation. You know, usually you get inflammation when you have a bacterial or viral infection. But for some reason, people with sickle cell can get inflammation with no infection caused by tissue injury, caused by hemolysis. And I think that's a hot area. You're going to see new drugs that are targeting the interleukin-1 beta, targeting interferon, targeting uh, IL-6. That infl inflammasome pathway is going to be important. And we have some data from Prithu Sun in, in sickle cell mice that if you add a P-selectin blocker plus an inflammasome blocker, you can completely stop vaso-occlusion. You know, so what if we could stop all pain crisis? That, that's, that's close to us now. Um, so those are some of the things I'm excited about. Amazing. That, that was a great chapter in the textbook, that sterile inflammation chapter. Well, fingers crossed. The future seems bright. I, uh, I know that we have taken up the maximum amount of time we could. But before I let you go, just like I have with the luminaries and pioneers that have been on this podcast before, I want to do a lightning round with you. And this lightning round is just going to be unrelated to sickle cell disease. This is about Dr. Mark Gladwin. Okay. So I'm going to ask you some questions and you just answer to the best of your ability. You ready to go? Yep. All right. What is your favorite song? Blinded by the light. Okay. If you had to choose a super... and, and, I'll, and hallelujah. Okay. Are, if you... are you a Jersey guy? No, but I like Springsteen. No, I do Springsteen. like Springsteen. I love Jersey girl. The, book, the song Jersey girl. <laughs> there you go. If you had to choose a superpower, which would which would it be? Well, it's always to fly. Okay. What's your favorite but I, season? But I, but I would ah. I would love I would love to contribute to a drug or discovery that helped people with sickle cell. That'd be a good superpower too. That would be the best superpower. That would be the best superpower. I agree. What is your favorite season? Summer. Your favorite ice cream flavor? Coconut ice cream, like Obama. Wow. Okay. Coffee or tea? coffee all right do you have any pets i did i did i had four big dogs but uh yeah they've unfortunately all passed away and and uh the three kids three dogs sort of wore us out so we're taking a break for now fair enough favorite holiday destination i like i like warming up being in pittsburgh so i do like going to either miami or we do have friends in northern california and southern oregon so sometimes southern oregon or or florida Perfect, 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 perfect. The last one. What's for dinner tonight? I don't know. <laughs> That's usually my <laughs> answer. <laughs> so hey, thank thank you for what you all do. This is really important. You know, communication and and and, and sharing values and sharing mission is so important. So I, I just want to thank both you for your creativity, your obvious obvious knowledge. I'm just amazed that you know the people here, you know the work, you know the science, you know the field. Nobody ever gets nitrous oxide and nitric oxide right. So I especially want to compliment you on that. So it's been wonderful. And thanks for all you do. Thanks, Dr. Gladwin. This has been great. Well, Warriors, there you go. Another amazing episode, this time with the luminary pioneer, sickle cell expert in pulmonary hypertension, Dr. Mark Gladwin. That was a good one, Dr. C. Yeah, that was great. I think we keep getting better, Dr. Z. Yeah, and you impressed the heck out of him by just knowing nitrous and nitric oxide being different. <laughs> well... You know, 
you try to laugh from the nitric oxide and it's no fun. Yeah. <laughs> if you know anyone who could benefit from hearing this episode or hearing Dr. Gladwin talk, which I can't imagine one person out there in the sickle cell interested community that wouldn't benefit from this episode, please share it with them. And uh, subscribe, rate the episode, and, and please go ahead and follow Cheat Codes. Follow me at Dr. Z Sickle Cell. And me at Imagineer. We'll catch you next time. Warriors, keep living well with Sickle Cell. Peace.